Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. So we're going to read scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 23, and then 50 through 56. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind of the gospel I preached to you. You received and on which you have taken your stand by the gospel you have saved. If you hold firmly to the world I preached to you, the otherwise I have believed in vain, for I have received pass on you as of first importance of Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and was raised from the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared in Tusiphius and then the twelve. After he appeared for more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living in through and fallen asleep. He appeared from James to then to all the apostles, and last of the appeared to him also. And abnormally born, for I am the last of the apostles and do not even deserve to call the apostle because I am persecuted Christ, the church of God, but the grace of the God. I am who I am and not, and of his grace for me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not, I am but of grace of God. I was, that was with me. Whether then I, it is I or they are as we preach and that this is what you believe. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead and that came from you, say there's no resurrection of the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has been praised. If Christ Jesus has not been raised for our preaching, is useless, and so your faith. More than that, you were found to false witness of God, and for we have testified that about God has raised from the Christ dead, from the dead, and he did not raise from, in fact, the dead was not raised, for if the dead are not raised, from then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is fertile, you are still of your sins, then those who are, have fallen asleep in Christ the loss, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we have pitted more than our others. For Christ is indeed from the dead, the fruit fist of all these who have fallen asleep. For the sense of death came to human, bringing resurrection from the dead comes also through a human being. For all the animal, for all in Adam all died, so that Christ will be made alive. But in all, but in all order, Christ uh, the first fist, and it comes would belong to Him. I declare you, brothers and sisters, that flesh blood cannot inherit kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit an imperishable. Listen, I tell you my mystery. With all, did not all sleep, but when all will be changed, in flesh and twinkling of the eye, and all the inter- last trumpet for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be rise, imperishable, and will change, for the perishable may clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, 
and then the perishable has clothed the imperable and the moral of the morality. And then the saying will written to come true. Death has been swallowed in victory. Where, oh, where is your victory? Where, oh, death is your string? The string of death and sin, and the power and the sin and the law. Thanks, Lisa. We actually got to have a, a podcast conversation about that passage this week and just talking about the mystery that it is, the mystery of the resurrection, and the mystery of the new life that we can have in Jesus. It's is the pinnacle of everything that we've been talking about. It's the pinnacle of our faith. And so I am so glad to be able to share that Easter story, that resurrection story with our kids this morning. Now, kids, I want to practice something with you. You may have heard us saying this earlier in the service, but whenever someone says, he is risen on Easter, you respond with, he is risen indeed. So let's try that. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Oh, sound, make it sound like you're happy when you're saying it. He's risen. There you go. All right. So this morning's story is a true piece of history that comes from God's word out of John chapter 20. Now, some of you may have heard the story of Jesus dying on the cross. We talked about that on Good Friday. And man, when that happened, his followers were sad. It was really hard for them. They heard Jesus saying, promising that he was going to come back, but they didn't know for sure that it, had hap- that it would happen. We know that it happened because we get to know the whole story. But when Jesus died on the cross, they didn't know the end of the story. They didn't know for sure what was going to happen next. So when Jesus died, their hearts were heavy and they were sad. It was one of those times where like, even though God's plans are good, they didn't feel very good right then because Jesus, their friend, had died. So the Bible says in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, early on the first day of the week, on Sunday, Easter Sunday, While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Can you imagine how weird that was? If you had seen Jesus die on the cross and you knew that he was buried in this tomb and all of a sudden you show up and he's no longer there, that'd be really weird. So Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That's probably my favorite verse in this whole passage, because John, the guy who's writing this book, wanted to put it in there and say, hey, by the way, when we were running to the tomb, I was faster than Peter. How many of you are fast? Can you, are you fast runners? How many of you are fast runners? I see a few hands. I was never the fastest, so I would not have put this detail in here if I were writing the story. So he bent over and looked in, and the strips of linen were lying there. He didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen laying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. Jesus was nowhere to be found. So the disciples went back to where they were staying, confused, not sure of what was going on. Now Mary, remember Mary? She was the one who showed up at the tomb first. Mary stood outside the tomb and she was crying. As she wept, she bent over and looked in the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Now to me, this sounds like a weird question. If I were Mary, 
It would make total sense why I was crying. My friend had died, and now my friend was no longer there. I didn't know what had happened. So she told them, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. Now, this seems a little funny to me. I'm not sure why Mary didn't realize that it was Jesus. Maybe she was crying so much. You know, when you cry a lot, sometimes it gets kind of blurry and you can't see. I don't know if maybe that's the reason why she didn't realize it was Jesus, but she didn't realize it was him. So he asked her too, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And I don't know what it was about how Jesus said Mary's name, but all of a sudden, as soon as he said her name, that's when she recognized that it was him. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, it's important that Jesus died on the cross. That part's very important. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for our sins. But it's also very important, as Lisa was saying from that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, it's very important that Jesus also rose from the grave because he paid the price for our sin on the cross. But when he rose again on Easter Sunday, that means that he proved that he was stronger than death. And if Jesus is stronger than death, that means that there is nothing that is impossible for him. Absolutely nothing. And that's why Easter is such a celebration. And that's why we say, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Happy Easter, everyone. Well, we have, uh, we've said this many times here, that this, today is the day, right? Easter is the day for all of us. In fact, it's such an important day that I wore a tie today. <laughs> it's, it's such an important day that I wore long sleeves on a 70-degree day. It's such an important day that Ferris, where is Ferris? I know he was going to be embarrassed about this. Ferris has an Easter dance, even, that he showed me. Do you want to come up here and show people, or are you going to be too embarrassed? Come on, Ferris, come on up. I I know you're not embarrassed. (laughs) He he showed this to me before service. And I asked him if he wanted, he said he was going to be too embarrassed, but I know Ferris is never too embarrassed. (laughs) All right. What's that? Well, in school, not. Okay. At school, you're not. But here you are. Okay, here's here's the Easter dance. All right. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Ferris. Ferris, you're a good sport. It's a a special day today, isn't it? When you get Ferris up here to dance for you guys. Uh, Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. You know, and, and I know that, like, if you were to ask Christians, what is the most important day? The answer better not be my birthday. It better not be New Year's Day. It better not even be my anniversary, although a lot of times that's the right answer, right? (laughs) 
But it's not. That's not the right answer. If you ask a Christian, what is the most important day? The answer is Easter Sunday, right? Christmas, okay, I understand Christmas a little bit. That I think would be acceptable, but really the the right answer is Easter. And so today, what we're going to do is, is we're going to take a look at this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the passage that Lisa read earlier, and we're going to walk through it, and we're going to learn why Easter is such an important day, certainly for our eternity, but also for how we live here and now. So if you weren't there with me before, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are going to to walk through it. So it's in your pew Bible. I didn't look up the number ahead of time, so I don't know if someone has it there. You can shout it out. 788. 788. Um, Or if you have an app, you can look it up there too. Uh, But we're going to walk right through it. As you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context like I, like I often do. The, the, fir- the book of 1 Corinthians is actually a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. I know that probably is easy to figure out. Uh, but, uh, but the city of Corinth was a Roman city and a very pagan city. And, um, and so the church there was actually made up primarily of pagan converts. And so they didn't have a lot of background in the Jewish scriptures, didn't have a lot of background in Jewish morality. And so they were trying to figure all of this, uh, all of this out. And the truth of the matter is the church at Corinth was a mess, an absolute mess. There were factions in the church. There were some people who said, I claim, I I follow Paul. And others said, I follow Peter. And others said, I follow Apollos. And then there were the super spiritual ones who said, oh yeah, well, I don't really get into denominations. I follow Jesus. And, uh, and, uh, but there's more, okay? There was a group of people in the church who were proud of the fact that there was someone in the congregation who was so sexually liberated that he was sleeping with his stepmom. They were proud of this. And there were others in the church who would regularly visit prostitutes. And then there was another group of people who said, even if you're married, you shouldn't have sex, okay, because it's, because it's evil. They were taking each other to court. There were some people, the rich people, who were getting drunk during communion and not allowing the poor people to even take communion. Uh, and, and I don't know what churches you've been a part of before, but my guess is you have never been a church, been at a church that has been as messed up as the church in Corinth. And this is what the Apostle Paul is writing his letter to, all 16 chapters. He's writing to this, to this church there. And... Uh, and, uh, and he's addressing all of these concerns. But then we get to chapter 15 that we're going to read today. And it seems like all of a sudden the Apostle Paul gets sidetracked with some theological stuff. It takes his mind off the practical problems of the day and starts to get on this theological tangent about Jesus' resurrection. I mean, Jesus' resurrection is about what happens when we die, right? That's what's important about it. But actually, when we take a closer look at it, what we find is, is that it's not just about happen, what happens when we die. It's actually about what happens even here and now. And what we find is that the Apostle Paul is saying that all of the problems in the Corinthian church can be traced back to a faulty view of the gospel, can be traced back to a faulty view of the resurrection. 
Okay, so let's go ahead and go to, right to, to uh, chapter 15. Now, Paul starts out the chapter by reminding them of the gospel that he preached to them when he first came. This is what he says in verse 3. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, right? So what the apostle Paul, the first thing that's important there is he's saying, this is not something that I made up. This is actually something that I received from the apostles. It was passed down actually from earlier believers. Okay, now 1 Corinthians was actually one of the earlier books written. A lot of scholars say that it was written probably sometime in 55 AD, which is about 20 years after Jesus. Uh, But most scholars say that what he shared there is actually... Um, that that uh, it's actually an ancient creed that goes back to uh, to a, just a couple of years after Jesus. Okay, and this doctrinal creed was from the early church. The second thing to notice here is that Paul says it is of first importance. In other words, this is the most important thing. Okay, and so what does Paul say is the most important thing? Well, there are three parts to it. The first one is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Okay, now, of course, he's talking about Jesus' crucifixion here. And there are some people who say, yes, you know, Jesus might have been a real person, but it's really the, the later church who made this stuff up about Jesus dying for our sins and made this stuff up about the resurrection. Okay? But, but again, this creed goes way back to just probably within a couple of years of after Jesus' ministry. And so even the early church believed that there was something about Jesus' death that was out of the ordinary, that something significant happened when Jesus died. That somehow, in some way, that Jesus, Jesus' death was for our sins. And Paul says that this dying for our sins was according to Scripture. Okay? And, uh, and he's there talking about the Old Testament. Then we go back to verse 4. Okay? That he was buried. Okay? In other words, he didn't just faint. That he was actually dead, and he was in the tomb for, for three days, for Friday night, Saturday morning, Sunday morning. So he was dead. I mean, dead, dead. And then third, that he was raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures. Okay? Now, Paul is reminding them of a very Jewish Jesus, according to the scriptures. And, and so what he's preaching here isn't new. It actually is ancient. It goes way back to the beginning. It's the fulfillment of an ancient story uh, from the Jewish scriptures, and we cannot take that out of context. Okay? We have to deal with Jesus as he is. And this is significant for the Corinthians because remember that most of them didn't come from a Jewish background. And one of the issues that Paul was running into is that the Corinthians did the same thing with Jesus that many of us do today. We extract him from his story and we sort of appropriate him for our own and and for what we want him to say. But the fact is, is that people use Jesus to justify all kinds of things that we want to believe. But the only way to really know Jesus is to not extract him from that biblical story and place our own thoughts and ideas and expectations on him. We have to take him as he is, a very Jewish Jesus. Now, the Corinthians would have been different because their ideas about Jesus would have come from what we call Hellenistic thought. And that might not sound familiar, but trust me, you know what Hellenistic thought is. It's because it it, it influences so much of even what we believe today. 
Now, one of the core beliefs of Hellenistic thought is what we call dualism. And that's the belief that the spirit is good and that the body or, or anything physical is evil. Now, there's a pretty good chance that if you grew up in the church, you probably had some idea of, of this sort of thing, that, that you picked up something of this belief, that we are actually an eternal soul that is trapped in this mortal and evil body, but someday God is going to come and he's going to rescue us from this body. Okay? And that would have been at the heart of how the Corinthians thought. Okay? And we'll talk about, more, uh, talk about that more later. Okay? Now, ultimately, it's those three lines that Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again, according to the scriptures, that, uh, that Paul summarizes as the gospel. This is the most important thing. And then he goes on and he starts to talk about the witnesses who saw Jesus after he was raised. Verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Okay, now... We don't have to get into all of the individual appearances, although that's kind of an interesting discussion in and of itself. But essentially what Paul is doing is, is he's establishing that this thing about the resurrection is not a made-up story. In fact, what he's doing is, is he's saying, now there are 500 people around right now that actually saw Jesus alive, and you can go find them. I'll give you names, and you can talk to them, and you can see if you believe, in fact, that it is true. Okay, now, remember in verse 3, Paul says that the, that the meaning of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is of first importance. Okay, this is the most important thing. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, you know, one of the things that it means is it rules out this idea that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Because there are a lot of people who say that's the most important thing about Jesus was, was the things that he taught. And that certainly is very important. Okay, but as important as Jesus' moral teaching was, the most important thing about Jesus is that he died, was buried, and that he rose again. Okay? Now, let's skip down to, to verse 12. Okay, because this is where we start to get to the heart of the issue here in, in chapter 15. This is what Paul writes. He says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, what this tells us is that there were some people in the church who didn't believe in resurrection. Okay, not just Jesus' resurrection, but resurrection at all. Like, they just didn't believe that any kind of resurrection was possible. Okay, and that's another point that, that modern people today would have with the Corinthians. Because, of course, there's a lot of people today who don't believe in any kind of resurrection either. But, and it's similar, but actually we would have different reasons for not believing in resurrection. So, for instance, today, someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection would mostly, most likely say something like this. Well, back in those days, people believed in legends and miracles and myths. But today we have science, and science tells us that when someone dies, they stay dead. Okay? They didn't understand back then like we do. Okay? Well, the problem is, is that even people back in those days who didn't have the science that we have, they knew that when people die, they stay dead. Right? Uh, they weren't as naive as we oftentimes make them out to be, and, and we're actually probably not as sophisticated as we make ourselves out to be, and so there's that too. 
but but the, there were also Corinthians who doubted the resurrection, but the reason that they doubted is different. Okay? Remember, they were dualists. And, and so spirit is good and body is bad. And so their reasoning would be something more like this. Well, years ago, people used to believe in myths and legends and things like that. But now we have philosophy. We have Socrates and Plato who told us that the physical world is evil. And so we know that God would never raise a body. Like, why would he even do that? Especially someone like Jesus who was, who was holy. You know, why would he raise him to an evil body? In fact, we doubt that Jesus even had a body to begin with, okay? And so their reasoning would have been different, but their conclusion would be the same. What what they doubted was not life after death, but what that life looks like. Because they devalued the material world and elevated the spiritual world, they didn't believe in resurrection, which resurrection actually means some sort of physical body, right? It's not just a a spirit uh, kind of thing. Okay, so now you might ask the question, well, what difference does that make? Uh, I mean, lots of people, in fact, when I was growing up, I kind of believed, I think I was kind of taught that, that heaven would be this sort of spiritual existence. And if you see cartoons and things, you know, when uh, Sylvester the cat dies, he is raised again, but he's an angel, right? He's this spiritual being and he's floating on a cloud and he's playing a harp and all of that, and, which never really sounded very good to me, to be honest. Um, and, and so, you know, a lot of people would say, well, what's the, what's the problem with that? As long as we believe in, in life after death, okay? But it actually makes a bigger difference than you might think, especially when it comes to Jesus. And the Corinthians were a case in point. Now, I mentioned earlier that the Corinthians, um, that uh, much of the problems that they were having in the church there came as a direct result of how they viewed the world, uh, including the afterlife. And so what we see in the Bible throughout history, throughout church history, uh, that how we view the world impacts how we treat the world. And how we view our body impacts how we treat our body. De- uh, devaluing the body actually can lead to a couple of different extremes. Okay? One, one extreme, for instance, is hedonism. Probably you've heard of hedonism before. This is the idea that the good life means indulging in all of the pleasures that the world can can offer us. Now you might be surprised to hear that hedonism can arise from a devaluing of the body. But this was actually the problem in the Corinthian church. For instance, sexual immorality. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul quotes a common hedonist saying where he he writes this. He says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. Now, the reasoning there was is it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies because God is going to destroy them anyway. And so, hey, you know, treat them however you want because it just doesn't matter. It's all going to burn in the end. Okay, but Paul answers by saying, well, don't you know that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Okay, and the point he's making is, is that God cares about our physical bodies both now and in eternity. And so honor God with your body. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is at the far end of the spectrum, uh, what we would call asceticism. And that means avoiding all forms of indulgence. And and the reasoning there is, is since the body is evil, then fleshly desire is to be resisted at all costs. And this is probably one that's, that's more common 
with, uh, with Christians. Because if the, phys- if the physical world is bad, and if our bodies are bad, and they're basically desire factories, then we should deny all pleasure and comfort, and would, should focus only on the spiritual. And this is the attitude that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, for instance, when there are some people who went the other way when it came to sexual morality, and they said, even people who are married shouldn't have sex, okay, because it's evil, it's bad. So we need to, we need to uh, make sure that we're denying all bodily pleasure. And of course, the Apostle Paul shoots down this extreme as well. Now today, this actually plays itself off in the church uh, because there are a lot of people who believe that the physical world, including our bodies, is going to be destroyed someday, and so we don't really have to care for them. I know this is hard to believe, that there, but there are some Christians who believe this. In fact, I'm astonished at the number of Christians who believe, as that, who, who, who act as though taking care of our environment is anti-Christian. Now, I know that there are some anti-Christian motives. There are people who do kind of worship the world if it's uh, uh, worship the physical world. Uh, and that's not what Christians do, of course. But I think if, if God says his creation is good and if he says our bodies are good, then it matters how we, how we treat things, uh, how we treat people. And that also means that when we do ministry, that we don't just focus on souls, although that is important, of course, um, but we also focus on physical needs of, of feeding the poor and clothing them and, and all of that. And all of that comes from a, a high view of the body, a high view of God's creation. Okay? In fact, the, uh, the biblical understanding of resurrection should cause us to care about the physical world and to care about the whole person, both body and spirit. Okay? Now, the point is this. This is why Paul takes so much time to try to clear up their understanding of Jesus' resurrection, not just as a spiritual resurrection, but as a bodily resurrection in a, nude, in a renewed heaven and earth. Okay? And to be honest, that sounds better to me anyway. Other than flying. like I, I always think when I go to heaven or in, in eternity, I would like to be able to fly. Anyone else with me there? Yeah, all right. Uh, So Paul has to establish this because he says that everything that we believe rises and falls on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. All right, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15 now. Look at verse 14. Paul sort of lays down the, uh, the gauntlet here. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Okay? Paul is hinging everything on the resurrection of Jesus. And this is critical because there are some people who claim to be Christians who really just want Jesus to be a good moral teacher. In fact, they're kind of embarrassed that Christians believe such an archaic thing as something like life after death or or resurrection. I I once listened to an interview with the late uh, atheist, uh, I don't know what, a philosopher or thinker or... Um, whatever, Christopher Hitchens, who he, he did this interview with a Unitarian pastor. And, and Hitchens was known mostly for his hatred of religion, like it was an evil thing, and he did everything that he could to try to discredit it. And, uh, and he was talking with this Unitarian pastor who was agreeing with him about religion. And during the interview, she was explaining to him how she uh, was a Christian, but she didn't really believe that the Bible was true. Um, or that Jesus was real, and she especially didn't believe in the resurrection, that it was an inspirational story, and that, and that we can learn something from it. Jesus was a good moral teacher and, and good for people to follow. 
And Hitchens' response was really telling, and, and, and this is what he said. He said, if that's what you believe, then you are not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Okay? See, even though he was an atheist, he seemed to understand this better than she did. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying right here. It's not just about an inspirational story. It matters whether it happened or not. So Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised, then you're wasting your time. Paul gives an example in in verse 17 then where he writes, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins, right? So you're still in your sins. Now, I, I want you to see the logic here, right? Because, you know, why does Paul say that you're still in your sins if Jesus didn't rise. I mean, I thought his death was about forgiving our sins. So couldn't we be forgiven of our sins even if Jesus died but he didn't rise? Well, for Paul, the resurrection is actually evidence that Jesus still holds the power over sin and death. And so even if the cross was enough to forgive our sins, without resurrection, we might suspect it, We might believe it, or we might assume that we are forgiven and that we'll see our loved ones again, but that's all it would be is just speculation. And so he goes on to write in verse 19, if that's all we've got, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because we are deceived, we are naive, and we have a false hope. But then he writes in verse 20, he says this, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, now, we sometimes think he's just sort of reiterating what he did, but he actually adds some new information here because he talks about uh, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits is an Old Testament term. That was when, when a farmer, for instance, would go and offer sacrifices, he would offer the first and best, the first 10% of a crop that was coming, and he would offer that as the, the sacrifice. Um, and that was called the, the first fruits. It, it's the first sign, but it's saying there's more to, be, no, more to come here. There's 90% more that, that's going to happen here. Okay? And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection. Um, in other words, when people ask the question, what will eternity be like? We can just look at the stories of Jesus' resurrection and we can say, oh, okay, so that gives us some hint about what it's going to be like. So what do we know about Jesus' body? Well, first of all, we know that he was physical in some way. And that's why in the resurrection stories, Jesus eats fish in front of the disciples. He invites uh, Thomas to, to touch his hand and his side. You know, what he's doing there is he's saying, hey, look, I am physical. I have a body here. But we also see some other places where Jesus seems to kind of appear to disciples. He seems to appear in locked rooms, does some things that you go, you know, some people maybe don't recognize him quite at first. And so there's something spiritual about it. So it's, it's different. There's a physical element to it, but it's spiritual. And, and so, you know, there's some mystery to it, but there's also kind of a picture of what's to come, that Jesus' resurrected body is a prototype for what we can expect uh, at, the, at the resurrection for us, right? Now, this is kind of a long chapter and we're going to run out of time. So I want to get to why does this matter for us? Okay, because there are, like we talked about before, there are some people who really like Jesus, but they chalk up belief in resurrection to some obscure religious oddity that, that it doesn't really matter. Um, and, and, you know, people who say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And this whole 
business of resurrection sounds a little bit too religious for me. But it's actually not abstract theology. It has some significant application for day-to-day life. Okay, let me mention three things. The first is that Jesus' resurrection can alleviate our greatest fear, public speaking. <laughs> Actually, when they do studies, that's, that, that usually comes out number one. But number two, number two is death, right? And that's, that's what I'm talking about here, death, okay? If Christ was raised, then we don't need to fear death, okay? It's no longer the great enemy because we know that this mortal life is not the end for us. It's only a transformation. And Jesus' resurrection can give us confidence to face whatever it is that life throws at us. Okay, now listen, we know that death is a reality for all of us. Every single person in this, uh, in this room today, barring the Lord's return, someday is going to face death, some sooner uh, than others. But we're going to face it someday. And the question is, is how will you face it? Will you face it with fear and anxiety? Or will you face it with peace and hope? Now, some of you remember Fran O'Dell. How many of you were... Remember Fran? Yeah. If you, if you knew Fran, you would never forget her, right? Uh, now, Fran, I can't remember whether she was, when I first came here uh, almost 11 years ago, she was 96 or 98 or, or something like that, um, and, uh, and she was really quite a, quite a lady. And I only got to o- overlap with her about six months. I think, well, maybe less than that. I came in June, and she passed away in October. But I can remember when she went into the hospital uh, after, after I had come, and, uh, and she knew, and I think everybody else knew, that this was going to be it for her. And I went up to visit her in the hospital, and I found her sitting up in her bed, and, uh, and I walked in, and immediately she started talking, talking really loud, right? Because she was hard of hearing, and she talked really loud. <laughs> and, uh, but she started talking to me. She said, Pastor, it's been good to know you. And I just want you to work hard and do good things with the church, but I'll see you later. <laughs> this is it for me. And, uh, and, you know, I think we talked a little bit more, but man, she, didn't, she wasn't sad at all. I mean, she didn't have a, a sad bone in her body. She just knew it was time, and so she just said, all right, we'll talk to you later. It's almost like, you know, she was just going out of town or something. Uh, and it was amazing. And I've met so many people, whether old or young, who have been able to have that same sort of attitude as they look death in the face. And to be able to say, you know what? This, this isn't goodbye. And resurrection allows us to be able to do that. Okay, if there's no resurrection, I've also met older people and younger people who when they were facing death were absolutely terrified. And even people who aren't, who aren't religious for most of their life, when they get to that point, a lot of times they become really religious and they start to think about things like, man, what, what about all the bad things that I've done in my life? It, there's almost this sort of inherent sense that, that I know that I am going to face God someday. And all of a sudden, they start to think about things like that. Well, have I done enough good things in order to make up for all of the bad things that I've done? See, the thing about Christianity, though, is that it teaches us that through faith in Jesus, that our sins can be forgiven, that there is no one who has done so much bad stuff in their life that God cannot forgive them. And we... Don't have to live today in fear of judgment because Jesus' resurrection vindicates what he said about forgiveness. Okay? 
what's the foundation for this kind of belief if it's only speculation? Okay? If, if, if we don't have some kind of evidence, then I don't see why we wouldn't have some of these fears. See, Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of our confidence that not only one day will we see God, but we'll also see our loved ones. And that's a comforting thought, isn't it, Loretta? Ed, it's a comforting thought, isn't it? It's a vindication for that. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Okay? We grieve for the loss of our loved ones because they were a big part of our lives, obviously. But all of a sudden, things like they're in a better place now go beyond mere platitudes. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we can be confident that we will see them again sometime. So that's the first part. The second one is this, is that Jesus' resurrection vindicates Jesus' teachings. Now, here we have to keep in mind that most of Jesus' teachings were not like a lot of people make them out to be. Be nice to other people so they'll be nice to you. That's how a lot of people summarize Jesus' teachings. Right? And, and we do have like the golden rule, for instance, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So it's kind of like that. But man, if you look at Jesus' teachings, you find there are some pretty challenging ones there. Let me, let me read a few of them to you. Okay? Uh, Sermon on the Mount. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Hmm. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. This is all pretty... Impractical teaching if there's nothing after, de- after life, right? Um, in fact, the Apostle Paul writes in our passage today, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Right? And I think that's, that's probably a more reasonable approach if Jesus was not raised. Okay? But the Bible tells us that it is in our weakness that God shows his strength. That God doesn't help those who help themselves or give more power to those who already have power. If greatness was accessible only to the richest and the strongest and the most powerful, then for most people it would be completely unattainable. But Jesus actually modeled his own teachings in life, death, and and resurrection. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that the greatest person, I'm talking about Jesus here, the greatest person ever to live, who was himself God, made himself nothing. He became weak so that we might become strong. He became obedient to death on a cross, and he allowed God to be the one who lifted him up. Okay? And without the resurrection, we would pity Jesus as being deluded. Okay, as a waste of a good life. Okay. But with it, we see the reality of the power of God. Okay. That's number two. Number three, Jesus' resurrection means that we can live with joy and peace regardless of our circumstances. And this is where the rubber really hits the road for us. The book of Philippians calls this the peace that surpasses all understanding. Peace that makes no sense. That other people look at you and go, how can you have peace with all that you're going through right now? The question is, is how does resurrection do this? Well, because in the resurrection, we get a glimpse at our future. In the resurrection, we get a glimpse at our future. Okay? Now, I'm going to 
be a little risky here because I'm going to use a sports analogy. So hopefully you get this. If, if you're not a sports person, maybe apply it to movies or something. I don't know. Okay, I'm a, I'm a San Antonio Spurs fan. You can boo me if you'd like. Although I don't know of many ha- hardcore uh, Timberwolves fans in here. At least not that you're willing to admit. Uh, but Now, I, I also have to admit the Spurs have not had a great run the last few years, right? In fact, 2014 was the last time they won the championship. And I got to tell you, it was the best year ever. And that championship was really special to me. They won it in five games. And what made it really special to me was, was the year before they had lost to LeBron James and the Miami Heat in the finals. Heartbreaking, seven-game series. Just rip your heart out kind of thing. But the next year they came back and they just completely whipped the, the same team basically running it back. And it was so satisfying. It was so satisfying that I bought the videos of all the games. Right? <laughs> And I can watch that series anytime I want. Now, in a lot of basketball games, especially in a, in a series, in a championship series, there's a lot of drama that happens in those games. It seems like every bounce, every you know, thing that happens in there, there are a lot of things that, that don't go your way. Uh, when you're in the moment and you don't know how things are going to end up, then you live and die by every bounce of the ball. Okay, how many sports fans? Are you with me? You know what I mean? Okay, when you're watching a playoff series. Um, That's how I was. I remember when I watched it live, that's how I was, right? Now, how do you think I watch those videos now? I watch it with joy. I watch it with gratitude. You know, in in game five, when the Spurs are down 22 to six, uh, I'm not mad. I'm not anxious, I'm actually on the edge of my seat, but not because I'm anxious, but because I know what's coming. I know that a player who shall not be named hits a mid-range jumper, and I know that Manu Ginobili picks his creaky 35-year-old body up off the ground and dunks on Chris Bosh, and I know that Patty Mills starts busting three after three after three, and that the fourth quarter ends up being just this big, long celebration, right? Even when things seem to be in doubt, I didn't have fear. I don't have anxiety. Why is that? Because I know the rest of the story. I know what happens in the end. Okay? In fact, in the past, when I was anxious about flying, I would oftentimes bring those videos with me. And I would watch them on there, and it would get my mind off it. And and it was funny because I didn't have anxiety because I was thinking about those videos and watching them and the feeling that I had when they finally won. They were my emotional support videos, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, something like that, right? Here's the cool thing about the resurrection. With the resurrection, we already know how things end. Right? Verse 51. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In, the, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's the end of the story. And if we truly believe that that is the end of the story, then what do we have to fear? Oh, there, there's going to be hard times. There will. There will be trouble. In fact, there will even be work for us to do to continue the mission of Jesus to proclaim the gospel and work for justice and peace and all of that stuff. But knowing the end of the story means that we can give ourselves fully to that task and we can live it out with joy. And the key for us then is to be able to internalize that good news. To not just leave resurrection on Easter Sunday but to allow it to be a reality for it as we're going through hard times and as we're going through good times, that we can embody the peace and joy when we know that God wins in the end. And on this Easter day, I pray that the truth of the resurrection burrows its way deep down into your soul and that you will know that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is also in you really alive in you. God, thank you for the resurrection. God, we thank you that, that we don't have to rely on speculation, that we don't have to rely on just a philosophy that competes with other philosophies, but that we have an event, that we have proof, that we have vindication, that you will win in the end. And so, God, I pray that that doesn't make us ignore the hardships in life and the struggles and, and all of that. But, God, I, I pray that it will help us to lean into them even more, to, to be able to engage with people in our lives who are, who are struggling, that we would be agents of peace and hope and joy because we know how it ends. And so, God, I, I pray that for those of us who are here, that we would live resurrection daily. Not just as we go on this day, but each day as we go and we be the church, that we would do so in the light of the resurrection. We pray all this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more, and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.